it's time to drop the needle on another episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate the support, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. We hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy, uh, and that we can provide you with a little bit of levity, a few laughs, and maybe even a dash of insight during these trying times. My name is Jordan Freemuth, and tonight I am lucky enough to be the boss in our Zoom version of the E Street Band. Rounding up the rest of the band, we've got the Secretary of Orange Crust and the Professor professor of Life's Rich Pageant, Dan Freemuth. Dan, how's it going? It's going great. Haven't uh, quite gone bald like Michael Stipe just yet, but I am letting the uh, hobo beard, I'm going to let that grow through just like Mr. Stipe. Not a bad idea. Next, we have the Minister of Octung Baby and the Keeper of All That You Can't Leave Behind, Little Gabe Freemuth. Gabe, how's it going? Well, boy, oh boy, just fine. I got to say, um, I see no line on the horizon for our little group continuing these talks. Perhaps a question that we'll explore throughout, but over under on number of YouTube references that Gabe makes during this podcast, I think I'm going to put it early at like 10. Um, I would like to state for the record that I, I'm going to make a concerted effort to try and keep those mentions down, as I understand there are other music artists in the world, I am told. <laughs> He there can't help himself. <laughs> he can't help himself. I'm taking the over. Easy money. <laughs> it's my limited scope. And last but not least, the prognosticator for all music recorded prior to 1977. Do I even have to say his name? The big man, Josh Freemuth. Josh, how's it going? Fitter, happier, more productive. A reference to an album that we will probably find ourselves talking about tonight. Before Perhaps. we get started, though, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Cat the Puck Master for leaving a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Cat, thank you for li- uh, listening. Thanks for also for your insightful takes on a mock time is another episode that deserves to be towards the top of the charts when discussing Star Trek the original series. Not going to be talking about Star Trek tonight, but thank you still for your review. To our listeners out there, we love hearing from you, so please keep those reviews coming. It really helps us to put together the best show possible. For the Walmart question to tonight's Dorkfest, I have a little desert island thought experiment for the dorks, so here goes. It's five o'clock somewhere, and you find yourself stranded on the island of Margaritaville. The son of a son of a sailor walks up, hands you a boat drink and a cheeseburger, and gives you two choices. You can either A, listen to the entire catalog of one and only one artist for the rest of your life, or B, listen to a playlist made up of as many songs as you want, but you can only have one song from any given artist. Which do you choose? Dan, gonna throw it to you first. This is extremely difficult because when I think about some of my favorite artists, folks like R.E.M., Bruce Springsteen, U2, Dire Straits, boy, the love for these artists really comes from the entirety of the catalog, but I've got to go with option B. It's going to kill me to have to decide between Karma Police and Fake Plastic Trees or Thunder Road and Badlands, but at least I get one of each, whereas if I went with the artist, I would only have that. Let's say I take Bruce Springsteen. That means I never get to hear REM's Losing My Religion ever again. Yes, it's going to make for some painful cuts and some tough decisions, but give me the playlist where I get at least one song from any number of artists. And I'm also going to play the role of 
being able to kind of scroogle the situation a little bit, maybe pull a Gabe shifty move and claim that Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler are actually two separate artists. So at least then I can get what it is from Mark Knopfler and Romeo and Juliet from Dire Straits. So give me option B. Some smart analysis there. And, and Dan, as usual, working around the questions that I asked, not always answering them specifically as they were asked, but can't necessarily blame him for doing that. Josh, what, what do you take in this uh, Desert Island thought experiment? Uh, it's extremely difficult, Jordan. And I do think that if you ask me this question tomorrow, my answer might be different. But right now, I am just in such a huge Grateful Dead phase that I could not conceive of going to the desert island without the vast catalog of live albums that they have put out without Terrapin Station without uh, American Beauty I mean there's just so much stuff and even though it's the same band they really do have a wide range of stuff they get you get blues for Allah where you have these long wide-ranging soliloquies at times and then you have like some like more pure rock music and some like folk stuff too. Um, I would go with the Grateful Dead and be content with my choice. Really great point too. And, you know, thinking about, especially with the Grateful Dead, you bring up this idea that you have such a wide variety in terms of genre, but then also you have how many different versions of Terrapin Station that you could listen to. So even in that one song, you have so many different iterations. And it's um, also a band that has multiple lead singers. So that g gives some variety too. Good points made, made from you, Josh. However, I think ultimately I'm going to have to side along with the person who you know, sort of changed the, the, the way my question was asked, but he did bring up some good points. I'm going to also go with option B. One thing that I've done from an early age is putting together mixtapes or putting together playlists. And that's something that I find to be sort of a creative endeavor. Um, so the idea of only being able to listen to one singular album or the work of one singular artist, but not being able to play around with that and, and put it together into different mixtapes or different mix CDs or different playlists, I, I think I would find something lacking in that. However, as all as we're all saying, I, I think this is a very, very difficult decision to be making. Uh, Gabe, last but not least, um, are you going to break the tie or are you going to make it a tie? I may surprise some here, but uh, in thinking about it, and credit to Josh's line, tomorrow I might give you a different answer. That's exactly, I think, maybe the only way to think about this question. And I'll provide some explanation here, but I think I got to go option B. I think I need the singular playlist from all artists because, you know, as much as I may love, you know, a hypothetical band in question, you know, name who you will, you know, if I've been with them all this time, it maybe is almost better to just remember the songs as I remember them rather than have the full breadth of it. And, miss out on something like the incredible opening drums of When the Levee Breaks, you know, or any number of other songs we're going to bring up tonight. But, you know, just as an example, am I never going to hear Prince again at the cost of having both War and Under a Blood Red Sky as a live album? You know, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, um, God forbid, no Bowie in our lives, no Bruce, as is going to be mentioned here, no Dire Straits or Mark Knopfler, Dan. No, I think um, at the end of the day, what I might amend here, if I'm going to bend the rules, is uh, I think I might go no U2 song, like at all, as my one. I, I think I have an idea as to what I'd pick, but I think I would have to just forego the entire thing. Again, at this point, I've got them all basically memorized. So yeah, I'm going option B. I want one of everything, except U2.
great points, Gabe, you know, especially in thinking about, you know, again, a helpful workaround that, you know, why have this music here that you're going to listen to if you can just listen to it in your head. And another thing that I wanted to just talk, touch on briefly that you brought up, Gabe, you know, the other thing that draws me to option B as well is that it leaves you open to exploring and experiencing and finding new music. I've recently just started listening to Joan Arbitrating, which was, you know, a recommendation that I actually got from my mother-in-law. But if I'm only picking one artist for the rest of my life, then I'm not experiencing, I'm not you know, either revisiting older artists or discovering new artists. One quick hypothetical back. Are we, uh, are we opening, opening this up then to say that you could get the entire breadth of like, if you were to choose the Beatles, can you get every discarded like D side single that they ever decided upon? You get every little ditty that went through uh, George Harrison's head. I'm certainly counting on being able to procure to the desert island every last scrap of music that Garcia and Weir put put to paper. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think when you choose that option, you get a little bit of leeway. Maybe not being able to combine Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler, maybe not to that extent, but I definitely uh, would, would expect a little bit of grace from, from this... Uh, mysterious fellow making me make this choice. I, I think if you've got the onions to make that selection and say, yep, yeah, I'm taking one artist and one artist only for the rest of time. Yeah, you get everything in the vault. You get everything under the mattress. You get everything that's still yet to come. You get it all. While that does give me pause, because I would love to figure out what it sounds like inside the Edge's head, I think I'm still going option B. Good question, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you much. So for those of you joining us for the first time, that's our warm-up question. We'll get to very, uh, quite a few other uh, interesting questions throughout the, throughout the rest of the show. But in the past episodes, we've riffed on some of the franchises that really initiated our ascent, or rather descent into dorkdom. But this week, we wanted to queue up something a little bit different, something a bit more socially acceptable, but we, as we are wont to do, have turned into something dorkdom. That would be music, as you have probably already guessed. Uh, since the first time that Dan heard the smooth sounds of Michael Stipe and Josh stumbled upon the earthy harmonies of Jerry Garcia and Gabe found religion in U2, it has been a fixture in our lives. Maybe the music is in the background, maybe it's in, a, uh, in an arena, or maybe it's blaring out in Agata de Vida between two speakers nestled on either side of our heads. But in one form or another, the music has always been there. So that's going to be our topic for tonight, music. The ways we listen to it, namely live performances versus recorded albums, playlists, mixtapes, and so forth, and the ultimate way to experience it. For those of you new to the pod, we'll separate this topic into a one, two, and three-point question. The moderator, which for this episode is me, will dish out points after each of those questions. And at the end of the episode, I will crown a winner. That winner may be based on points made throughout, points earned throughout, or maybe just how I'm feeling at the end of the show. So let's get this record rolling. For our one-point question, Josh, we're going to be going to you first. Why is a live performance the ultimate way to experience music? So I'm going to take a page out of my fellow dorks books a little bit here and turn this question around on you three 
and ask you about what the first concert you ever attended was. Mine was a Y100 festival in the year 2000. I was 16 years old, and there were a number of other bands playing, but the ones that, that we ended up seeing were the Violent Femmes and Lit at the E Center in Camden. My first concert ever. So what was your guys' first concert ever? I'll follow that up because my first concert ever was actually at the same venue. And I don't know if it was the Susquehanna Bank Center or the Tweeter Center or whatever in the heck it was in Camden, New Jersey. But back on September the 5th in 1999, I went with a whole host of high school friends to an REM concert. It was in the midst of the Up Tour. REM was my favorite band at the time. I had never been to a rock concert before. And at that point, I mean, I was 17 years old. So, you know, pretty old for my first concert. Had an absolute blast, couldn't have drawn it up any better. I, I feel very blessed too that my first concert was REM. I feel like some folks have horror stories of bad bands that they saw uh, as their first concert. I got very lucky with REM for my first one. I too feel blessed because my first concert was actually with another one of the dorks. Josh and I attended this concert. Uh, I was at the Spectrum in, um, in Philadelphia. We saw Pearl Jam, uh, which was in April of 2003. I remember that there were quite a few times in which I pretended to know the words to the Pearl Jam songs and Josh was nice enough to not make fun of me too much. But since then, I've educated myself in terms of quite a bit of their catalog. Gabe, what about you? I'm reminded suddenly that it was actually a high school band in my high school auditorium. But as far as like a you know more concert experience, it was uh, Def Cab for Cutie at Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland in uh, 08 or 09. I think it was in support of that year's album, Narrow Stairs. Um, so I think it might have been the year after 09. So... The reason that I wanted to ask, first of all, I think it's just a fun question to ask people what, because as Dan said, some of, some of them are horror stories about what the first concert was, but we, we can all remember it. We can all remember what that first concert was. It's such a unique experience going to a rock concert, and especially when you've never been to it before. I mean, I remember just walking around the lawn at the E Center being totally overwhelmed, and I, 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 was, with, I was with a high school friend, and you know, being overwhelmed, but trying not to look overwhelmed. I think I knew one Violent Femme song. I had no idea who Lit was. I don't think I've listened to a Lit song since. But, you know, trying to appear as though I knew these bands and or even liked these bands. I don't remember Lit even being that particularly that good. And I think especially now, uh, under all our current circumstances, even that experience of feeling slightly uncomfortable or slightly overwhelmed, but when it's around people um, and sharing a common experience just feels so desirable right now. And so I think there are so many great things that come from that when you get to go to a live concert. And of course, since then, I've been to so many others where I've known every word, every song, like Jordan said with Pearl Jam. I think I've seen Pearl Jam four times Bruce Springsteen five times and Jimmy Buffett eight times. Those are the highest frequency concerts uh, for me. But th there are lots of other just like special stories about going to uh, that stick out for me about going to concerts. One of my favorites was a Bright Eyes concert that I went to at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. And they played a song that a lot of people know called First Day of My Life that on the album is very slow and very sort of sweet. And 
at the concert, they sped it up and they had two drum kits going and a whole string section and a flute solo at one point. And I just remember being totally blown away by this completely new version of this song that I like and thinking like, holy crap, this is actually better than the original in some ways. And, and that sort of surprise experience is something that I cherish. That is one reason why live performances are that ultimate experience of music for me. Yeah, Josh, I think you bring up a couple of really important points there. One of the ones that I wanted to hit on, because you were talking about how, like, especially in this time, in this, this moment in time, we're drawn to these sort of communal experiences, anything that makes us feel like part of a larger group, you know, for obvious reasons with how socially isolated we have to be at this time. And it makes me think of some of the streaming performances that I've been watching of late. And I do think there's a bit of a distinction here between, like, a stream of an older concert that's being re that's being re-recorded or represented between that and say like an actual streamed live performance. An artist that I'm a huge fan of is Josh Ritter, and he every Tuesday has been doing something he, that he calls his silo sessions, um, and these are basically like hour-long weekly concerts that he just streams on YouTube, and you can watch them. Um, similar to that, there was the Love from Philly Music Festival had a large group of large catalog of artists all from Philadelphia or connected to Philadelphia in some way who were performing uh, shows there, uh, most notably for us, The War on Drugs, and then also Kurt Vile. Um, and then actually just this past Friday, Jason Isbell put out a new album and he and his wife, Amanda Shires, did an album release show that was live. And I found myself very, very excited for that. And it took me a little while to realize the reason for that excitement was because I felt like I was part of something bigger than me. I was, I was part of something live, but I was also part of something that was bringing a community together. So that to me, you know, kind of piggybacking on what Josh was saying, that to me is a really powerful part about the live show experience. This, this part, this emotional connection that you're feeling along with the other people around you, whether they know more of the words than you or the same number of the words as you. I think the communal nature of live concerts, it's basically what helps create these memories. Why did we start this podcast? Because we have lots of memories as it relates to Star Trek and Star Wars and James Bond. And so many of those memories specifically associated with those franchises stem from this core four that we've got right here. And when I think about music, it's no different. You know, I have distinct memories of being on the railing at the Tweeter Center watching Pearl Jam, and when they're blaring into the guitar solo at the end of a live, myself, Josh, and Jordan are banging on that railing, and the thing is moving, and I remember thinking, the railing might crash down, and we might hit the deck, but everybody communally together having that experience. I remember spending a morning and an afternoon in the parking lot of Lincoln Financial Field with Gabe because we were going to be in the pit for you too. And the gates open and we go pouring in and we're down on the field. And it ended up being where there was a point in that evening where I was so close to the band, if I wanted to reach up and untie the edge's shoes, I'd have been able to do that. And the music, of course, is wonderful. But to me, it's the communal sharing of those music moments, to be able to share them with, yes, the people immediately around you that you went with and who are important to you, but somebody earlier mentioned everybody there 
basically with the same agenda, all in love with the same thing. So when I go to the Beacon Theater to watch Mark Knopfler, yes, I may only be there by myself, but I am, I am not by myself. I'm in a room with 2,000 people who appreciate the music of Mark Knopfler, the songwriting of Mark Knopfler, and in that, you're not alone. You are together. And I do think that that, that message rings particularly true now in the circumstances that we are in. But I don't think that those memories would be any less special, even despite, you know, our current circumstance. I still remember sitting basically in, you know, standing in the back row of Lincoln Financial Field. I mean, Bruce Springsteen is more than an entire football field away from myself, Josh, and Jordan when we went on a whim to night three of Bruce opening up Lincoln Financial Field and when he starts wailing on Badlands, he might as well have just been singing to the three of us. And it's those memories, those communal experiences. If you're making the argument that live music is the ultimate way to experience it, that would be how I go about making that argument. I, I think everybody's bringing up exactly the right stuff. I mean, I'm nodding along with all of this. And I, I think, firstly, to, to Josh's point, uh, nobody had a, had a bad concert experience here as their first one. We all, you know, from the, from the jump, were uh, into something good. There is something about seeing an artist that you like, say it's, it's good to know, obviously Bruce can play, but it's good for somebody's first time, you know, it's different seeing the artist perform their music. Because when you also go see it, you're also seeing the artist literally do their art in the, theoretically in the purest way they can. They are showing you what this song is, what this album is, what this performance is, you know, to them. And that's really the only time you can do that is in that direct engagement, you know, whether you're untying the edge of shoes or you're, you know, bobbing along the Badlands. Yeah, there's definitely that personal engagement, but you're also seeing the, the art of it, you know, the, the skill, the craft, everything that's going into it and, and the presentation. It's all, it enhances the, the product you came to see in the first place. Uh, but all the communal nature of it too, it's uh, artists as disparate as you uh, 2 and Childish Gambino, I've heard personally <laughs> say that we're going to turn this place into church. That sort of community is... Uh, and, you know, there's music in church. I suppose there's similar themes to begin with. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the energy of it, as you say, even if you went alone, you're not alone. Speaking of music as church, that's something that Bruce Springsteen brings up at pretty much every single one of his shows, too. Yeah. And the difference between seeing Bruce Springsteen live and hearing him on, on a on his album is night and day. I remember that Bruce show that Dan was talking about, I had to be convinced to go. You know, I was the one saying like, I've heard all these songs and they're good, but I don't know that I need to see them live. And then Dan unfolds this album that we had gotten. It was a live album and just had this sea of people. He's like, don't you want to be a part of that? And so I like, like, okay, fine. And then, you know, for three hours to see, Bruce running around like a madman. I mean, there's there was nothing like that on Born to Run, as as great as Born to Run is. And that's exactly what I mean. There, you're seeing them do it, and it's different than hearing them just do it. And you're there's something to that too. But yeah, seeing them raw up there, you know, these days no auto tune. You know, it, hopefully that kind of thing. Especially in Bruce's case, it's energy. 
so Josh and Gabe, you guys were both talking about like kind of the difference between hearing and seeing the live performance. And I wanted to focus just a little bit on more of the hearing part of it. Because one thing that we haven't talked about a whole lot, but is one thing that draws me a lot to live performances are the live albums that we have. A couple of live albums that for me, like really stick out in my mind. Uh, my, Morning, my Morning Jack, and you have Okonogos, a wide ranging, a vast live album with a lot of really, really powerful performances in there. And they do an excellent job of as much as is possible capturing on an album the power and the energy that Gabe was talking about of the live performance. Um, another one that I think about, and this brings up another point that I wanted to talk about, sort of in terms of like live albums, we'll get into a little bit more with the recorded albums, uh, but Wilco's Kicking Television. Because for that, you know, I, I got to Wilco a little bit late, um, and I'm embarrassed to say that, but I got there eventually, so I got that. When I was really first introduced to Wilco, or rather when I when Wilco really first like grabbed me, it was through this album and it was just through the renditions of the, you know, I'm thinking of heavy metal drummer. The the version of that song on King Television is just it, it just it just grabs you by the throat and takes you. And it's so powerful. It's got that energy that we've been talking about. Dan, what about you? Anything you want to say in terms of live albums or any live albums that stick out in your mind? I mean, there are quite a few for sure. I mean, um, you know, I, I don't know that there's anybody better live in concert than Bruce Springsteen. And I think his live albums certainly portray that, whether it's 75 to 85 or live in New York City. I think the Frame set list is, is a tremendous live album for anybody who's not terribly familiar with the Frames. I think that's a, a wonderful introduction. And Pearl Jam has basically made a career of putting their live performances out, you know, as available albums. But I guess when I think about live albums, Jordan, as you were kind of talking through some of your favorites and why you like them, I, I came up with this question of, do I prefer live albums because they help me relive memories or for what I labeled here off to the side as FOMO, that I was not there but boy, this sounds really awesome, and I kind of wish I was there. So you can sort of get to live through those who were there. But I think that really starts to blur the line between studio recording and live performance. I think I generally prefer live albums of bands I have seen perform live. So maybe specific albums of concerts that I was at. That's becoming far more common now with digital downloads of concerts after the fact. I love being able to relive and revisit shows that I personally have been to. Or simply, I went to a show on a tour, a band releases an album that's a sort of greatest hits of that tour. Not every song on there is one I heard, but it's in the essence of the tour that I saw them and I can kind of relive and relate to that. The other half of that is that's you're more detached. That sounds really cool. And boy, wouldn't it have been great if I was there, but that strikes me in a different way than the way that I appreciate and enjoy live music, which is that communal experience and being able to kind of relive it together after the fact. I think you have a good point there, Dan. Um, and I think it's that I, I agree with you that it's better to listen to live versions of a band that you're familiar with already you know what the bass track is you know you know you've got the context for it it's tougher to get it get i think a live experience unless that's also sort of point of the either the concert or the artist or the music it's tougher to get that from um, a live experience than a, a full than a recorded track and i think to your point it's about capturing a moment is what those live ones are you know and you do sort of get to participate again in that communal experience from afar 
as you say, but I think to, to Josh's point as well about the live variations of songs, that's a neat way to uh, preserve those moments. You know, you, some of my favorite versions of U2 songs are uh, some of their live interpretations across the years. Um, sometimes you just strike on the heart of a song in the moment and it's worth preserving that. So once again, I'll take the other side of this as I, that's a great question, the way you laid it out there, Dan, and I'm looking down this list of all the live albums that I made that are my favorite live albums, and there's only one band that I've seen in person there. I wrote down the band, who has Rock of Ages and The Last Waltz that I truly love. I've never seen the band live. The Who, live at Leeds, we were supposed to see The Who, but then our mom said, no, you have to come on this one last beach vacation before Dan goes off to college. And then after that, John Entwistle died, and we were never able to go see The Who. But Live at Leeds has always been one of my favorite albums. Uh, Grateful Dead, Dear Jerry passed on before I was able to see them. Fish, again, I was supposed to see the fish, and then standing at the Ticketmaster at Macy's with Dan, their Ticketmaster machine went down, and I wasn't able to get tickets for that show. The Frames I've seen, and the Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore East was another one that I wrote down. So I do think that for me, these live albums is more about experiencing these live performances that I wasn't able to in person. Certainly it's, it's very cool to hear the live Bruce and the live Pearl Jam and, and the frame set list, Dan, as you said, is a, is a tremendous album. I mean, I mean the, the frames is one of the more obscure artists that we've mentioned here, but, but that live album just rocks guys. I mean, that's just awesome. But yeah, it, I, I, I never made the the distinction before, but it certainly seems clear that given my taste that, that I have geared more towards enjoying these live albums because it's something that I wasn't able to experience in person. And I think there's something to be said for the cultural impact of some of these as well. Um, Last Waltz, I think, I mean, that's, that's an important one. I think Scorsese made a movie about that. And I mean, you know, none of us are ever going to see the Beatles, but, you know, I'm certain we've all seen their last concert on top of uh, Apple Records. And, you know, again, that's just something, again, recording that, you're capturing that experience, that moment. This is what it looked like the last time the Beatles were together. Before we move on to our two-point question, just to offer up my um, answer to this uh, sort of hypothetical that Dan threw out there, I I think ultimately I would agree with what a lot of us are saying, that it is at least partially based in, I guess, where where I would say that there's quite a, there's a bit of a distinction. I don't know that it's necessarily a fear of missing out. For me, it's almost an opportunity to live in something that I missed out in. So maybe I'm like mincing words or mincing ideas there a little bit. And part of that for me, like I think about the albums that I, that I, talked about I talked about my morning jacket with Okonokos which I had seen them live first the three brothers we saw them open up for Pearl Jam once and Dan was the one that that pulled out that uh my morning jacket did a cover of it was a song by the band Josh I know that you're gonna know it so I'm gonna throw it to you uh, it makes no difference. Yes, it makes no difference. Um, Dan was the one that pulled out and said, like, this sounds like the band. So Dan, great pull there. More to the point, though, with Wilco, Wilco was a band that I heard live before I saw them live and then geared me towards wanting to see them live. That said, Josh, I totally agree with what you were saying, especially in terms of the band and the Grateful Dead. You know, obviously two bands that are not going to have the opportunity to ever see live. So it does give you that sort of, opportunity to to live through that dan last word on this before i dole out some points yeah i just i just wanted to close our sort of live music discussion by just making a point that i i really should have made just right at the very beginning and that is that the live environment 
is how these musicians, these groups, these artists intended this music to be heard. Nobody joins a band or starts a band or starts writing songs with the idea that my ultimate goal is to sit in a lifeless recording studio, lay down a series of ones and zeros into a computer, and then sell X number of units you know, through iTunes. That's part of the ultimate dream, but the dream is you get together, you form a band, you write songs because you want to share them with people and not just digitally, but you want to face-to-face -face share these songs with people because they are important to you, they mean something to you, and so therefore you're hoping that they will mean something to someone else. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you bring that up now for two reasons. Um, one, first off, it does feel a little bit like you're groveling for points here at the end of the one-point question, just trying to say like, oh, maybe I was, you know, I should have brought this up earlier, but please, please, Mr. Moderator, give me these points here towards the end. But more so, and for me, more importantly, the point that you're bringing up, I do think segues nicely into our two-point question, which we'll get into here in a second, because I, I do think there's some truth to what you're saying in terms of the live music experience and that being how the artist intended for their music to be heard but at the same time with albums we have these creative stories almost that are being created and, and i and i do think that there's some purpose and some intention to that as well maybe it doesn't necessarily overwrite the live performance intention that you're talking about but i definitely think it's supplemental before that though i do have some points to dole out so really could we could be giving out points to all of you here but unfortunately that's not how this dork fest works anymore you know gabe you brought up church which you know definitely something that i could give you some points for you also brought up the point that none of us really went to poor or you know embarrassing first concerts which was a good point that said and the reason that someone is going to be getting points is because i believe that they had the best first band experience would probably be me if i could give myself points in pearl jam but since I can't give myself points, or rather won't give myself points, point number one is going to go for the one-point question to Dan, because he saw R.E.M., and out of the four options, I think that was probably the best first initial band concert that any of us saw. I'll take it. Thanks, Jordy. It was, in fairness, it was the Bill Berryless version of R.E.M., so just down to the, the three members, but still R.E.M., I'll take it. You're lucky that I've already spoken that point into existence. Otherwise, I might have taken it away. But let's go ahead and flip the album to side D. Um, we're going to get to our second, uh, second question here. This is going to be the part of the show, too, where you're not going to want to tell anybody that you don't own Blonde on Blonde. So for our two-point question, we're going to be going to Dan first. Why do you think recorded music is the ultimate way to experience music? So I think there's a lot of points to be made here as we did on the live side of things. I, I think it's the ultimate way to experience music because I think for the majority of us, this is the way we consume most of our music, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, you know, walk out the front door every morning and a world-class rock and roll band was just at the corner performing a live show? Maybe when quarantine comes to an end, that's the surprise that will be awaiting all of us. My guess is that it's gonna be no, and that we're gonna to have to continue to consume digitally, on vinyl, on CDs, whatever it may be. And so because that's the way we all experience the majority of our music, I think that we have to put a lot of stock in that. More to your point, Jordan, 
about the albums, I, I think that not every band, but I think most bands do put a lot of care and a lot of thought into albums. And I do think, and this is going to be classic old guy, get off my lawn kind of stuff. I have Spotify. I love Spotify. Their playlists are great. But I think that online streaming has really taken away the brilliance of a full album. You can stick Radiohead on shuffle and it's great, but OK Computer doesn't make the same sense when you listen to it at random as compared to when you listen to it as it was intended. And I realize that's a very pretentious kind of douchey way of putting it, but that's what it is. An album was curated in that manner and not, again, not every band goes to the thought and the length that the Beatles did with Sgt. Pepper, right? I mean, that's, that's the original concept album by which all concept albums that followed after that, you know, are kind of playing off of. But I think because it's the way the majority of us experience our music and because I think that when an album is put together the right way and you can listen to it from track one to track 10 straight through and it tells you a story and it takes you on a ride and this wave of emotion theoretically that you go through as you listen to it, I think that's important. And I think that's why if you're making the argument that studio recordings, the, the versions of the songs that we as commoners have access to every single day, that that would be why it's the ultimate way to experience music. And it might be a pretentious take, but it's also probably the right take. Uh, Josh, what are your thoughts? Well, I was going to say that I, I really understand where Dan is coming from with the Spotify stuff because I was a really late adopter to Spotify Premium because I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine many times who was telling me you got to get Spotify Premium, you got to get you got to get the premium. It's six bucks and you get all these songs. And I was like, but I like albums. I like putting in a CD or putting on a record and starting at one and listening through. And it was only, you know, the, the convenience of Spotify enables me to do that still. Um, but, but I was a really late adopter because that was so important to me. Uh, Jordan, when you were saying that artists craft these albums and that that is part of their creative endeavor, uh, the, the one that sticks out to me and the one that I would rank as my, best and favorite studio album of all time is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, that Dan was saying about OK Computer, if you play those songs out of order, they go from a masterpiece to, I don't want to say unlistenable, but as you said, they, they make no sense out of order. For a, an album like that, and there are lots of other examples, another one of my favorites that was alluded to earlier is George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. I mean, the Beatles break up and he's got this trove of songs that he has that weren't good enough to make it onto any number of these Beatles records over the years. And then he drops them all at once on this masterpiece of an, of an album. And it's, it's one of my favorites to this day. So I, I, I do feel somewhat guilty, um, consuming essentially all of my music these days through Spotify, but I'm, I find that I'm still able to have that gratifying experience, uh, feeling a little bit of pride listening to an album from start to finish. I'm with you, Josh. I'm the Luddite that still doesn't have Spotify. And it's not through any real denial of technology. I think I'm just lazy. Also, I've signed up for enough streaming services anyway. So, you know, 
music one. I, there's still something for me about owning music. Um, maybe I'll claim to be old-fashioned, and uh, and I'll take the pretentious label from you there, Dan, because I don't think it's pretentious at all, to your point, to say that, and as everybody else has alluded to as well, that, yeah, an album is the artist's statement, and, and with recorded music, similarly to what I was trying to say with the with the live thing, if that's the artist showing you what the song is is meant to be in their view, you know, they're performing it, this is, you know, that is, as you said, Dan, they're in their element, they're doing everything, you know, to get this song out to the back row. It's a very different experience when you're listening to it with those uh, speakers on both sides of your ears or in your giant headphones or in your earbuds or whatever it's going to be there. It's very, it's much more personal. The communal experience becomes a song sung just to you. And I think the experience is much more subjective. It's uh, it's different. It takes the song from what the artist, I mean, it, uh, to your point too, Josh, and Pink Floyd is an incredible example of it needs to be listened to in the way, you know, it was laid down. I mean, even going from something like the happiest days of our lives into another brick in the wall, it's hard, it's hard to just jump right into another brick in the wall on my shuffle anytime without that intro, because it just sort of makes the song. Definitely the thing about recorded music, I think, is it is, there's definitely more, uh, some more artist intention there as far as we're talking about full albums, but even down to the, to the song level, that becomes a much more personal experience. You know, Gabe, what you're talking about there and sort of like the artist's attention is making me think about the fact that, you know, an, an album is curated. It is, it's almost like a meal that's being prepared, being prepared for us all to consume. That if you listen to OK Computer out of order, it doesn't make sense because what you're doing then, in essence, is you're moving around the chapters to OK Computer and you're reading it out of order. It's like reading A Christmas Carol but the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows up first and you're like, who is this dude? And why is, why is he not talking? So it's, it's taking this whole narrative and whether the album is a practice in narrative storytelling or thematic storytelling, I think there are some distinctions to be made there, but regardless, if you're just putting it on shuffle on Spotify or whatever streaming service you might be using, you're, you're taking that dish that was, that was carefully constructed and, you're, and you're, you're presenting it all out of order. The one point that I do wanna make in um, defense of Spotify, um, and I think it was an early adopter of Spotify Premium, is that it does allow me to expose myself to a lot of new music. Now, what's tricky there is that you're, you know, I'm kind of casting a wide net, and in that wide net, you're going to grab some good stuff, and you're going to grab some stuff that's not quite as good. But, you know, I think about a couple of albums that I have caught by kind of casting that wide net using Spotify over the course of the past couple of years. Just a couple of year, years ago, um, Maggie Rogers, her album, I uh, heard it in a past life. And her, you know, whole, the story of the production of that is very, very interesting. If you haven't watched the album, the video of Pharrell Williams discovering her, you really should take the time to watch it. I mean, you just see him, this visual coming over him, like, I've never heard anything like this before, and very much experiencing it in the moment. Another one for me, though, in terms of an album that I've been exposed to more recently is Brandy Carlisle's By the Way I Forgive You. And I think this is more of an album that, takes more of a thematic approach to storytelling. All the songs in here are about people that have been pushed to the outskirts of society. And it's an album on behalf of them. It's an album for them. You know, the, the song that won the song of the year, I believe, The Joke, uh, you know, is a song about all these teenagers who have been pushed to the outskirts of society. And the song basically says, like, I I've seen this movie and the joke's on them. The joke's not on you. You're going to end up okay. So I think, you know, this sort of thematic storytelling and the curation that goes along with that is really, really powerful. 
And there's also just a question of flow, Jordan, too. Uh, I mean, as Gabe was saying, with Happiest Days of Our Lives and Another Brick in the Wall, I mean, those two songs just on the radio, they always play them together just because they flow one right into another. And it doesn't even have to be a full album. One of my favorite stretches of songs uh, to listen to these days is Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy, the first three songs off that. Uh, song Remains the Same, Rain Song, and Over the Hills and Far Away. You know, those three songs just sound perfectly together in the second half of that album. There's some ups and some downs, and so I wouldn't put that as like an album masterpiece. But those three songs, it's 15 to 20 minutes of just perfect music that flows all together. And I don't know that there's any grand narrative storytelling. That's not exactly Robert Plant's strength, but it doesn't have to be. They all just flow together. That flow that you're talking about is something that I think about in an album that Dan talked about earlier too, with Sgt. Pepper's. You, you, you could listen to that as one entire song with the way those songs um, flow from one from one to the next. And that's one that I think about in terms of that thematic storytelling too, because that's basically an album to the point that Dan made earlier, where they basically asked the question, what can music sound like? And, you know, they came with Sgt. Pepper's with being for the benefit of Mr. K. And for me, my favorite song on that entire album, Lovely Reader. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to follow, I have to jot down a couple of things as you guys were talking, because there's so many great points being made. First of all, Jordan, just getting back to your thoughts on Spotify. Uh, I think you actually were the one who converted me into being a premium member because of some of the benefits that Spotify, and look, I use Spotify every single day. I mean, I, at this point, I honestly am not sure what I would do if you took that away from me. And to your point about discovering new music, yeah, unfortunately, I can't go to Princeton Record Exchange every day and plunk down 20 bucks on 10 you know, cheap CDs just to take a listen and see what I like. I would love to do that. But Spotify Premium is a heck of a lot more cost effective. And one of my favorite bands that I've enjoyed over the last couple of years is a band called Bears Den, which I discovered as a direct result of listening on Spotify. And now I own several of their albums. And that gets me to my next point about I still curate music on my own. I have Spotify, I use the heck out of it. And in breaking with what I said earlier, I listened to Karma Police on its own earlier today just because I like that song. And I think it's still wonderful even by itself. I think it's a little bit better as part of the album. Doesn't mean I'm not just gonna sit and listen to it because it's a great tune, but I still like to collect and curate music. Uh, I'm going through a, a very minor vinyl stage right now and I will do that thing that people who listen to vinyl do and say that it does sound better on vinyl because, you know, it does. I am probably the only human being left on planet Earth who still collects CDs and has not traded them all in for pennies on a dollar. I still like experiencing that album experience. I like having something physical in my hand, being able to read liner notes or lyrics or look at album artwork. And I, when I think about, the another question occurred to me as you guys were making all of your points, when you think about live music as compared to recorded music. And I think the live versus studio distinction is, live is how it happened right? Just how it transpired. Because one night it could be very different than another. 
Bruce could have forgotten the lyrics to I'm a rocker one night and he might remember them the next. What? Bruce would forget a lyric? <laughs> it's no. been known to happen a time or two. So well, live is Eddie Vedder syndrome. <laughs> live is how it happened. Studio is how it was intended, right? The studio version has gone through many different revisions, many edits, and sometimes bands take that a little too far and it sounds like it's gone through too many edits and there's been too much auto-tuning to the vocals but that's how the song was intended and that's what you get and i think we should appreciate and respect that so another thing that's cool about the album recordings is you can also evaluate some bands over time i think gabe earlier you brought up david bowie and i I, I don't know that I would pick any one David Bowie album that I absolutely love. I, I like Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust has a bunch of really good songs on it. But I was just looking at, at his run from 71 to 75, where every year he puts out one album and he goes through Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Diamond Dogs, and Young Americans. Once a year for five years. I mean, that, you know, is it enables a, an artist or a band to offer up this huge array of of music over a, a period of time be it short or long and that is impressive in a different way than one album masterpiece is impressive or that one live performance is impressive bowie's a great example and certainly we've talked about the beatles too and the incredible transformation they go through as the 60s go on and really i mean musicians were making music different in that in those days you know the, the studio was all and you have to turn out an album to stay relevant every year you know, you finish a tour, you're going back into the studio to write another album. And if you write another album while you're on the tour, that one's going out as soon as you get back into the, you know. Um, I mean, and this goes on through, I mean, for a lot of your favorite era of uh, music, Josh, but even, you know, through just to about about the time we start coming into the world. Um, and it's only then that we start getting, I think, the single culture has only always been around, but technology then drives this sort of cherry picking nature. And this is what eventually leads sort of to the Spotify thing. And in the midst of all this, you know, Maybe people make mixtapes and all that, but the way the way music is consumed is is changing, um, and a lot of that is, as Dan pointed out, I think, driven by also the kind of recording. I mean, YouTube is a thing now; anybody can upload the, anything they make on their computer in their own whatever equipment they order off Amazon and make anything that'll get them, you know, that can get them seen, that can get them signed, that can. But also, you don't need to be signed these days, and I, I think it is interesting to think of because the notion of the album is also changing. We're in a single-driven culture um, now more than ever and we're not going to get I don't think another run unless an artist is tremendously prolific we're just going to get a couple of albums every few years from Billie Eilish from Childish Gambino from you know whoever's whoever's uh, up next another thing we might not get Gabe that, that we talked about a little bit in the prep for this episode is those fantastic debut albums the the sort of rookie of the year award for the for rock and roll of uh, a couple, but the one that sticks out for me that, that I loved a band that I sort of pride myself that I found early is Kings of Leon's Youth and Young Manhood is a, is a fantastic album. And it's, you know, it's raw, but it's, it's awesome. You know, as you said, with, with people uploading, you know, music to YouTube, people just throwing podcasts up on Spotify just because they feel like it might not be something that we see too much, too much more of. 
the debut album is is a great thought. I mean, and that that is there are certain bands that kind of arrive fully formed, and um, that rawness though is a part of it. Cause I, I, mean, I guess you know people seem to arrive fully formed. Somebody like Lizzo, for example, seems to have just arrived out of nowhere, and it's tremendous. And her album's been out a couple of years actually. Like it's only the last eighteen months that people have been starting to realize that you know she had dropped this amazing set of songs. And I think that's kind of the exception rather than the rule. It, again, where you know somebody drops something on YouTube they get famous from that one song. Then they get an album, but we already know who they are because they've been defined by this one song. And it, a band or an artist doesn't often get the same kind of chance to you know, define their own image in their way that way. Um, from my point, just to you know, toot my personal Irish horn again, I gotta say that I do think U2's Boy in 1980, similarly raw, but I, raw, but I think it rates as so much of what the band is going to be is written in that album. You can hear that energy, you can hear them. It's the same thing that, you know, Bruce Springsteen famously does. He tries to reach, you know, he, he brings, he wants to bridge the gap between the audience and the stage and the performers, you know, and you, they're reaching for it. You can hear Edge's bells ringing. You can hear, you, you can feel the steady pulse of the rhythm section. And so, I mean, and Kings of Leon is another great example. And that rawness, I think, is the best part sometimes when you just have the, you have both the, what's already the past and what you can see is the future of a band. You talked about a couple things that I want to hit on. First off, in terms of just like these great debut albums, I agree with you that U2's Boy is, a, is an excellent example of a great debut album. A couple other ones that I thought about. One that Dan may have been referencing earlier when he talked about maybe, you know, people playing around a bit too much in the, in the studio. Coldplay's Parachutes is a great debut album not their best album that for me is 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 definitely a rush of blood to the head but then also a little bit more recently fear fun by father john misty i think is you know another example of an album where an artist is is presenting himself as fully formed and i think that connects a little bit to the point that i did want to make in terms of the general discussion that we've been talking about and it makes me wonder if sometimes we're being a bit too fatalistic in terms of like the death of the album or saying that, you know, albums of, of course are never going to die, but, you know, being a little bit too fatalistic in terms of thinking about existing in this sort of singles um, era. Musicians are artists and artists, another word for artists is an innovator. If you think about Childish Gambino, if you think about Billie Eilish, they are much like what the Beatles did, what I talked about earlier with Sgt. Peppers, they're asking themselves, what can music sound like? And then this is the result. So I do wonder, do we need to sometimes, maybe right now, do we need to sit back and see where are these artists going to take this and, and then inspect it a little bit after the fact? So I don't want to be all gloom and doom on the death of the album by any means, but I do want to pose one very quick and simple question to each of you guys right now. When was the last time that you listened to a full album from start to finish. Let's go around the room right now. Jordy, go ahead. Earlier today, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was great, as it always is. If you were not preparing for this podcast, when was the time before that? And, I, and this goes back to some what I was talking about earlier, just with like how I consume music on Spotify. My, my deal with Spotify, I look at it as if I'm going to pay the money for premium, I need to invest my time in an album at least once a month or at least once a week. So if we're saying bare minimum, I'll listen to an album in its entirety once a month. Okay, Josh, how about you? So in not preparing for this podcast, it would have been probably one one day last week, Dark Side of the Moon, 
Um, I, I wake up really early for work and the, the house is sort of quiet between like 5.30 and 6.30 when the, when the little feet start running around. So I generally get about an hour of quiet there. And so if I'm going to listen to an album start to finish, that's probably the hour when I'm going to have to do it. And yeah, so it was Dark Side of the Moon. Now, if you ask me, when was the last time I listened to a full album start to finish, not on Spotify? I don't know that I'd be able to tell you the answer, unfortunately. But a full album a week ago on Spotify. Gabe, how about you? That happens with relative frequency these days. Um, when we moved, we acquired ourselves a phonograph. Yeah, it, uh, it, it comes on, you know, it's late in the afternoon. And as we make dinner and clean up and do the dishes, we flip side A to side B. And that, you know, takes us an hour kind of thing. Um, so it would have been yesterday. And it was Awaken My Love, Childish Gambino. Okay, that actually is not at all the answer that I thought we were going to get. And so that basically reinstills my my faith and my hope that albums will continue to be a thing because I the point I was going to get at is that we've got a room full of music lovers here and nobody listens to full albums anymore thankfully I am very thrilled to have been wrong the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated people have been predicting the death of the album physical media of any kind for a long while now and whether it's collectibles or whether it is yeah owning a piece of the artist's intent in your hand, you know, liner notes, some photographs to go along with it, whatever helps tell the story of the album, people are going to want to do that. The album is, um, while threatened, perhaps in no danger of extinction, you know, especially these days when you can also have artists engaging as directly as ever with their audience through something like SoundCloud, through something like, you know, when they then get on Spotify, again, they don't need a label anymore. They can play a guitar, they can sit that they can do the McCartney thing all from their bedroom and a microphone they order, upload it. There they go. And Gabe, you bring up a you know a great point. Like with that, you know, when I was talking earlier about Maggie Rogers, that's very much what what happened and and how she became an an artist that produces a record for us to consume. And you also talk about kind of like the record collection part of it. And I do ultimately think that you're right there that like there's always going to be that collection nature to it. In fact, you know, Gabe, as we were preparing for this episode, I, I, I'm not sure if it was you or somebody else, but somebody pointed out the fact that actually vinyl sales have have steadily been going up in the past years. Gabe, as you finished off with Dan's hypothetical point or with Dan's general question, um, that also gave me a thought in terms of points. So before we move into our three-point question, I do need to dole out points for the two-point question. And I am going to be doing something that I don't think we've done yet in terms of the Dorkfest, the podcast competition. I'm going to be doling out separate points. So I am taking the two points for the two-point question. Josh, you get one of them. Gabe, you get one of them. The reason that you each separately get one, and I would give one to myself as there was a third point to have, to be had, the reason that you're both getting those points is because you reinstilled hope. You reinstilled confidence in Dan that, in fact, the reports of the album's demise have been exaggerated. And we are potentially being a bit too fatalistic in terms of thinking about the death of the album. So, Dan, while you did make some good points, I think we can both say that, that Josh and Josh and Gabo, they earned those points. And then it also sets up a winner-take-all three-point question. So with that idea in mind, as we move into our liner notes for this week's episode, our three-point question is this. What is the ultimate way to experience music? Gabe, go ahead. 
we've brought up so many, you know, whether it's at a concert, whether it's sitting, you know, just with your headphones, whether for I, for a long time, for me, it was, uh, you know, on the train uh, to class with my iPod in. I think we can all have a, a love of what it is to drive in the car and listen to our music. But yeah, whether to shuffle or whether to set it to an album, whether to listen live or, or you know, the best quality version out there. I think I'm going to have to say it's, um, I think I got to, in the end of the day, as much as I love going through albums and, and taking that journey along with it, I think for me, it is often more about having a personal soundtrack. And that was, you know, the beauty of the Walkman to begin with, you know, a Discman, an iPod, and now just everybody's phones. You get to carry your Spotify, you know, the, the amount of songs you can carry with you and just, you know, depending on what your mood is, whether you're trying to brighten a cloudy day or whether you're, you know, just want to feel a little rain on a nice sunny one, you can bring it with you and you can be your own DJ. You can curate your own experience. You can make your own album, sort of give yourself the mixtape experience. And you can always, it's easier than ever to share that stuff with people too. And hopefully you give them a song, maybe they go out and find the album, same as you. And it's not to say that the album doesn't have its place. Uh, it may be the most pure form of music that we've talked about here. Here's a set of songs from, you know, my heart and soul. Hope you enjoy them. But I think, you know, I, maybe it's, uh, I'm leaning on the, on the personal side. Gabe, just to jump in there, I'm going to agree with you that I think the, the ultimate way to experience music is a bit of a combination of the, the, the full album experience, but then also the curated experience that goes along with that. For me, what I'll typically do in, a, in the way that I set up my Spotify playlist is I'll come up with a general theme or something for the playlist, and then I'll pick whole albums back to back that I will play through that. And in terms of directly answering this question that I posed, which Gabe had a little bit of trouble doing, and that may affect him in points later, in terms of directly answering the question that I posed, the ultimate way for me to experience music is full albums in the background while I'm preparing food. That's very specific experience just as I was thinking about this. That is something, especially during this time of the quarantine, has brought me comfort, has brought me routine. And that for me, I, I, you know, to, to say something that, gave, uh, that I think Josh said earlier, my answer would probably change tomorrow. But right now, I feel that I can say that with confidence. Wow. You guys are complete and utter total hose heads because those answers could not be any more egregiously wrong. The ultimate way and the best way to experience music is to do so live. And it doesn't matter if you're in the pit at Citizens Bank Park, watching Bruce Springsteen on a hot, steamy night in Center City, Philadelphia, or if you're in the dead last row, I don't even think we were in the dead last row at the link, and you're 150 yards away from the boss, that is how the music was intended to be enjoyed from the artist and the band's inception, wanting to share this music. You're not only sharing that experience with the person that you're there with and with the artist, but with all those who have come together. There's the spontaneity of the live performance. You're not quite sure what you're going to get. Some bands are very formulaic. Others, like The Boss, are a little more off the cuff. They're, he's going to pick signs out of the crowd, the set list. It's a bit of a moving target. Pearl Jam is the same way. Pearl Jam could play two hours or Pearl Jam could say, the heck with curfew. We're okay if we get banned from this venue. We're going to play three and a half hours because we're Pearl Jam and that's what we can do. You're never quite sure what's going to happen, but the memories that you create 
in those experiences. Jordy, you and I were supposed to go to a Phillies game. We got tickets to a Coldplay concert for free in the parking lot, and we end up going to see Coldplay for free at Wells Fargo Center. We've seen Mark Knopfler together. We've seen Radiohead together. You know, this group, we've experienced so much together. And when you think about the seminal versions of songs, when I think about Badlands, I don't think about the album recording. I think about the version that we heard at Lincoln Financial Field with 70,000 people chanting along during the bridge of Badlands. When I think about Romeo and Juliet, I think about hearing that in a theater setting, Mark Knopfler plucking away on that beautiful silver guitar. Those are the moments and the memories that stick with you forever. They enhance your love of the album versions of these songs, but those are the memories. And why are those the memories? Because that's how the music was intended to be enjoyed in the first place. I'm afraid that uh, we're going to have to call on the listeners to break a tie here because I agree with Dan that the ultimate way to experience music is live. And Dan, you, you use the magic word. It's the memories. The live events, the live concerts produce the most vivid memories. And I just want to tell two quick stories about a band that I gushed about probably a little bit too much already on this podcast. And that's the frames. I first discovered them in 2004 at the tower theater. I was in college and I went to see Damien Rice at the tower theater and the frames were the opening act. And I didn't think anything of it because whoever thinks anything about the opening act and then they come out and play. And I just think, Oh my God, who are these guys and look at what they can do. They completely stole that show for me. And uh, so, so that was this, this sort of earth shattering performance that I saw there at the tower theater when I saw the frames. And then next, when I went to see them a few years later, when they were headlining at, at the tower theater and they were covering a Van Morrison song and I'm sitting in, in the crowd and I'm, I'm, singing along because I know this song and I, and I, and I'm talking to my friend who I'm with and I'm saying like, Oh, it's, it's, it's off of Astro Weeks. It's, it's the first song off Astro Weeks, but I can't think of the name. And then from two or three rows back, somebody says, it's Astro Weeks, dummy. Only it was West Philadelphia, so I didn't say dummy. But like th- there was that communal experience uh, and this memory that sticks out, you know, nearly 15 years later, someone whose, whose face I never even saw, but I remember with this shared experience that we had seeing the frames of the Tower Theater. So it's those memories that a live performance can produce that are unlike anything that I think a lot, that a studio recording can replicate. I'm going to go ahead and break the tie and say that the best way to experience music will be in about 10 to 15 years from now when personalized VR concerts are a thing and everybody can just log into a server like Grand Theft Auto or the you know, old Second Life stuff and you know you can pick any camera and you can be anywhere you can fly around you can't really interact with the band you can get anything you want and you know what you can probably even personalize the bots to yell mean things at you depending on you know the geographical custom features that you can unlock for a small one-time fee of 99 cents per you can have your own holographic version of the boss or Mark Knopfler or Bono Gabe would probably just choose to have like a room full of Bonos maybe with an edge sprinkled in there Oh no! I'm gonna I'm going to be on the edge the entire time, <laughs> the edge of the edge. I just want to watch his, the man work. Before we 
dole out points and dole out a winner for for this episode i'm actually going i'm i'm also going to break the tie because as dan and josh were were both talking about that live experience i'm gonna go ahead and switch it live live is the way to go specifically you know josh as you were talking about the frames it made me think of a band that i've referenced already that i've seen twice um, neither time when they were the lead act, and that was My Morning Jacket. I already referenced the time the three of us saw them open up for Pearl Jam. The other time that I saw them was when they were the opening act for the, the stadium show at the XBN Festival, where it was My Morning Jacket first, and then Wilco second, and then Bob Dylan finished, finished off the show. You know, a great three-set show, uh, but My Morning Jacket by far saw the show. And, and the memory. I'll never forget the memory of that concert. We took the train to get down there, um, and it poured. It rained the whole day. And I just remember, for anybody that's been to the Susquehanna Bank Center, I think it was that at that point, we were under the overhang, but like just barely under the overhang, such that the mist from the rain that was still falling was falling on the back of our necks. And even though like it was such a miserable, disgusting experience, I'll never forget the experience of seeing My Morning Jacket live at that specific instance. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and change my answer. I'm going to break the tie. Live recordings are the way to go. And with that in mind, I'm also going to be doling out the three-point question, not splitting this up at all. Only one person gets this. And the winner will be Dan. Because he said it first, and he said it best. Dan, Dorkfest champion for the music episode. Congratulations. Well, and he had My Morning Jacket covering the band, which I resent him for nailing that to this day. And you're right that he basically won this episode before the episode was recorded, before the idea of Dorkfest, the podcast, was even, was even a point in any of our brains. Dan, any points that you'd like to make? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this latest episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast and subscribe, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you find your podcast. Times are tough out there, but we hope that everyone is getting by with a little help from their friends. For Dan, Josh, and Gabe, we're Sergeant Slaughter's Lonely Dork Club Band. We hope you enjoy the show and will join us next time on Dorkfest, the podcast. Okay, buddy. Uh, I was just trying to cheer us up. So go ahead, put on some old sad bastard music. See if I care. I don't want to hear old sad bastard music, Barry. I just want something I can ignore. Here's the thing. I made that tape special for today. My special Monday morning tape for you. Special! Well, it's Monday afternoon. You should get out of bed earlier.